0: Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Through this podcast, we hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus and in living and loving like Him. Before it ever entered the world, God had a plan to right what sin would wrong. That plan centered around the sending of His one and only Son, In and through Jesus, God revealed his design for our destiny, if we are willing to see, believe, and receive it. His plan has never been hidden, and in the person of Jesus, we find our example, our access, our hope, and our calling unveiled.
1: All right, here we go, round four. Who's ready? Come on. Been waiting for y'all all weekend. I tell you what, after preaching this three times yesterday and singing so much, I felt like one of my big old ears was going to pop off my head. I'm just... But you know what? If you can't get jacked up to preach this message, I shouldn't be preaching. Come on, somebody. Uh, because this is it, man. This is Now, I know that, like, it's weird. As I said a minute ago, it's so easy for, for things that we do frequently to become so familiar. And f- familiarity breeds contempt. When we do something annually or or frequently, it just, somehow, its significance begins to slip away. And it just becomes that this becomes a religious holiday. And that's what I heard it referred to all week, even in secular places, in places of the world that maybe don't understand the reality of what we've come to celebrate. It may just be a religious holiday commemorated with baskets and bunnies. I'm sorry, but if you let your kids run that creepy Easter bunny, I'm calling DSS. There's something wrong with you because that dude is creepy. I'm sorry. It's bad enough we put him on an old man we don't know his lap every Christmas. Anyway. (sighs) I get weird on Monday nights. Uh, But that's what it can be. And it can be just about, about getting up on Easter Sunday morning, putting on your pastels, your Sunday best, and going through the motions, and then going to Grandma's house, ham and deviled eggs, that liquid diabetes that we call sweet tea here in the South, and just going through the motions. But you might could call this day a lot of things, but if you refer to it as a religious ritual, then you've lost all sight of what it means. Because to connect religious to anything that Jesus was about or anything that Jesus came to do would just be a misstep because as we've been learning over the last several weeks what we've watched Jesus do in his earthly ministry is to try to separate himself as much as possible from that word religion if you watch the ministry of Jesus life the majority of it was spent trying to undo all that religion had done because even, even the Jewish faith, which God had begun through a covenant with Abraham, that was intended to point people to Jesus when he came. Like everything, if you ever wondered the point of the Old Testament, the point of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus. But when it got hijacked and twisted by man, and it became a religion. And what religion has been has been, always been man's attempt to get to God. And Jesus is God's desire to get to us. And so if you start connecting this event that we're here to celebrate today and start tying religion to it, then like like you've missed it. Because nothing about Jesus' life was religious. And nothing that he did, did he ever intend to be connected to the religious system. And as we've been learning, it was religion that put Jesus on the cross. It was the religious system that Jesus so upset, so frustrated that they killed him for it. All throughout his ministry, he was pushing the envelope with those guys. He was was pushing against everything that they had known and everything that they had been ingrained in. And And when Jesus finally started calling himself God, they had had enough. And they had been paying attention to everything Jesus did and everything that Jesus said. I think they were even paying more attention than some of his disciples at times. Because even... They worried about this day. So much they went to great lengths to make sure that the Jesus they killed stayed in the tomb that he was put in. If you go into scripture, look at Matthew 27, pick up with verse 62. It says the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be even worse than the first. So Pilate says, take a guard and go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. See, the religious people say, you know what? We had heard that he was going to say three days after he was dead, he was coming back to life. So we need to take great measures to make sure the disciples don't get some hair-brained, silly idea and go and try to snatch Jesus' body out of the grave, which was a borrowed tomb from a man named Joseph who was from a town called Arimathea, because Jesus didn't have the money or the means to have one of his own. And so their decision is pretty stout. Pilate says, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to secure this tomb as greatly as we can to ensure that nothing happens to Jesus' body. And it says they took and put Caesar's seal on this tomb. That seal might not mean a whole lot to us, but to anyone in Jesus' day who had seen that seal, it represented the most powerful force in the known world. You following with me? Say amen. It was the seal of Caesar, the Roman government, who at this point were literally taking over the world. And not just did they seal it with Caesar's seal, they decided to put a Roman centurion on watch at the tomb. A Roman centurion was a Navy seal on steroids. (laughs) That's the best equivalent I can make. Roman centurions were the most elite fighting men of their time. They were well trained. They were skilled warriors. They didn't put Barney Fife. I'm looking around making sure there's an old enough crowd to know who I'm talking about when I say that. (laughs) Like this was a Roman centurion to seal the tomb, to make sure nothing happened. Because the religious people had heard what Jesus had said. All throughout his ministry, Jesus had made it clear what was going to happen. Multiple times, he said, I've got to die. In three days, I'm going to rise. I've got to die. Three days later, I'm coming back to life. You tear this temple down. In three days, I will build it back up. Like all throughout his ministry. So you would think, even though there was a seal, and even though there was a Roman centurion there, that the, the, somewhere along the way, in, maybe late into Saturday night or early into Sunday morning, one of those people that called themselves a disciple of Jesus, those who had followed him and who supposedly their ears were intent on every word that came out of his mouth, would have been thinking, like, it's been almost three days. It's time to go have a tomb party. Like you think that that they would have been gathered around the tomb like Times Square on New Year's Eve, waiting for the ball to drop, like the whole disciples would have just been going, three, two, one. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> but when dawn breaks on that first Easter Sunday morning, the only people that were headed to the tomb were a couple of ladies. And as they made that journey to the tomb, they didn't come with anticipation or expectation or celebration. They came with the intentions of preparation. That morning, they were headed to the tomb not to see if it was empty, not to celebrate a resurrection, but to prepare the body of Jesus for its eternity in that tomb. The Bible says that they... How we're gathered up all the spices and all the things that they would traditionally use to wrap and basically kind of embalm and prepare a body to be laying in that tomb with spices and all these kind of things. And the reason why they were waiting until this morning is because, because as Jesus breathed his last and died on the cross, it was moving into the Sabbath. And it would have been unlawful for the women to go on the Sabbath to prepare his body. And so they would have had to have wait till the Sabbath was over. And on Sunday morning, as dawn broke, the Sabbath was over and finally they could go and wrap the body but as they approached the tomb the ground began to shake and all of a sudden the stone was rolled away and sitting on top of it was an angel and even as bad a man as this roman centurion was even an angel would paralyze him in fear and so as they step upon the tomb they weren't there expecting any of this and so in shock they look and they discover that jesus was put there a few days ago but as they stepped in and came to the place where jesus was laid they realized the tomb was empty Look what the, the angel says. Pick up with verse 5 of Matthew chapter 28. It says the angel said to the women, "Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he ain't here. Cuz my angels are southern as well. <laughs> he ain't here. He is not here. He has Risen. I thought I had people who love Jesus in the room. I'm sorry. He has risen. Just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he lay. And with that, after three days, the news of the empty tomb begin to spread these women they went there with the expectation not of a risen savior but with the whole purpose of preparing jesus body to lie in that tomb for all eternity because somehow they and the rest of the people that claimed jesus had missed it and they show up at the dawn on that very first easter sunday morning only to discover and you would think in that moment like everything would be different but the tomb is empty and nothing has changed. The tomb is empty and nothing has changed. The religious are still scheming. Upon hearing the news of Jesus' body no longer being in the tomb, the religious aren't inspired to believe They're more determined to squash what Jesus has started. They come, matter of fact, they decide like they come up with a plan. Look at it. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. It says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep if this report gets to the governor we will justify we will satisfy him and keep y'all out of trouble so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed and this story has been widely circulated among the jews to this Very day, so dawn breaks on Easter Sunday morning, and news of the empty tomb begins to spread. And at this point, it's changed nothing. The religious people are still trying to do the very same things they were doing when they put Jesus on the cross. And look at the absurdity of their plan. It's like, all right, y'all, here's what we're going to do: we're going to tell everybody that these guys that he called disciples. Snuck in and stole him. Okay, I know that since since Friday or since Thursday night, when Jesus got arrested, that all those people that were close to him have scattered, scared like cockroaches in the light. And I know that they were just really average Joes, like common fishermen and tax collectors, and people. And and so we'll just tell them that somewhere between Thursday night. And Sunday morning, they went through some type of secret ninja training (laughs) and were able to sneak in past Roman centurions without waking y'all up because y'all discovered Ambien before anybody else thought it existed and y'all were just out. (laughs) Let's go with that. Yeah, let's, let's, like remember, if a Roman soldier was put on guard, if he would have been caught sleeping at his post, they would have crucified him just like they did Jesus. But this is the story that we want to tell. And there's some people that believe that. See, you can't deny the tomb is empty. This is historical fact. Nobody can deny that the tomb is empty. You can go there to this day to a place that they, they don't know for sure if it's actually the tomb that Jesus was laid. They, they think maybe it could have been or, or would have been. But there's no doubt that Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb. But the news of an empty tomb changes nothing. And for a lot of people, you can ask them if the tomb is empty and they'll tell you it's empty, but it doesn't change a single thing in their faith or their relationship with God. And there's some people that still believe that story, that Jesus was this figure and whatever, and his body was stolen. And there's some people that think that, that this story was real, that, that somehow these disciples mustered up the courage and the tactical ability to sneak in and steal the body and keep him hidden. Even when, Roman, when Rome's next emperor of down the road, Nero, began cutting Christians' heads off and lighting his garden with their hair on fire on the end of a I would have been like, I will show you where it is. (laughs) Dawn breaks. The news of the empty tomb begins to spread and nothing has changed. The religious are still scheming and the disciples are still scared. See, I think somewhere along the way that we believe that these women, and even though they saw an angel, and even though all these things had happened, and even though one of them actually has a a physical encounter with Jesus, that like we would think that they went straight from the cemetery to the town square and says, I got something to tell y'all, Jesus is alive. You would think they would have went running from the moment they left the cemetery all the way through the streets declaring the good news. But the way that John records what happens next doesn't show that at all. If you read John's account of what unfolds after this moment, what you realize is dawn breaks, the tomb is empty, and nothing has changed. The religious are still scheming, and the disciples are still scared. Go to John chapter 20. Pick up with verse 2. It says, so she, one of these ladies who had been there, Witnessed all this stuff. So she come running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John talking about himself, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Like, even even after all that's happening, even after having time to to see the angel and have all these encounters and think about all the stuff that's happening, she still doesn't realize what's going on. Her response to what she's seen, they took Jesus' body. We don't know what they did with him. So, so the religious are telling people that the disciples stole him, and the disciples think that the religious people stole him. So everybody's confused. Nobody's hunting eggs. Nobody's eating ham. What is happening? They, John, Peter... We went to the tomb. We went to prepare Jesus' body like we're supposed to. We went to the ritual and the ceremony that, that was necessary to prepare his dead body. And, and they, they've taken him, and we don't know what they've done with him. And you think, Peter and John, who who were two of, of the three people that were closest to Jesus, even closer than many of the other 12 would have thought. Boom, light bulb. That's right. Hey, what day is it? Peter, what day is it? John is Sunday. He's alive. You would have think that's what would have happened. But look what happens. It says, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. I just think it's funny that John had to put in that he beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> beat you. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It says, verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight on into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Stop right there for a second. So you would think like, okay... Sun's been up for a while. The news of the empty tomb has begun to spread. And, okay, these ladies, maybe there's stuff going on with them. And all, but, but surely Peter and John, these two, these two disciples who were so close to Jesus, in this moment, you would think, okay, this is it. Like things are about to shift. There's about to be a turn. The Jesus movement is about to rise back up right now because they're now, they're not just taking the word of these ladies. They're standing physically standing in the empty tomb so next stop has to be to go to the temple and be like y'all killed him but guess what he alive he said he was going to we believed it all along like I think maybe we even assume that that's what happened next because that's kind of the way it played out in the Easter cantata when I was growing up like the dawn broke tomb's empty he's alive he's alive he's alive like that's the way it went but read the next verse. They've stood in the tomb. They saw it empty with their own eyes. And verse 9, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. See, from the moment that Jesus got arrested, the disciples were scattered and scared. And you would—we give them a hard time. But like, no, I'd, I'd have stood up for Jesus. I would have. You're not as tough as you think you are. Remember, the Roman government saw, had been convinced by the religious that Jesus was leading a rebellion against Caesar, essentially. And how do you stop a rebellion? You don't just cut off the head. You squash all the ants as well. So, you know what I think Peter and John, especially Peter, you know what you know I think he believed? Like, I'm the one that, like, Jesus said, Upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church. I'm the one that had, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there in all these special moments. Like, they're gonna come after me next. If they're gonna stop what Jesus started, they're not gonna just stop with killing Jesus, they're gonna kill me, they're gonna kill John, they're gonna kill James. You just already did, but they're gonna kill all these other people, and like they, if, if they're gonna kill Jesus, they're gonna kill all of us too. They're gonna to make sure that they squash what Jesus has started. So they hid in the shadows. They withdrew because in the sa- in the shadows it would be safe until this whole thing blew over. And even as the sun rose and the stone was rolled away. And even after they had stood inside and looked for themselves, they still ran scared. Because news of an empty tomb changes nothing. Look what happens next. Go on to verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. Says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, for fear of the Jewish leaders. So dawn breaks, and the stone is rolled away, and the tomb is empty. So when the sun rises, the news of the empty tomb has already begun to spread. When the sun sets, they're still locked in a room scared. Because news of an empty tomb changes nothing. But then all of a sudden, As they're locked in a room, scared and fearing for their life, there comes a moment that would change everything. As they're standing there, scared and worried and confused and unsure, Jesus shows up. Now they're no longer staring at an empty tomb. They're looking at the risen king. And that changes everything. News of an empty tomb changes nothing. The reality of a risen king changes everything. And it would be that moment. Now they're no longer staring at strips of linen in an empty stone cave. They're staring at Jesus in fullness of flesh right before them, eyeball to eyeball. And to look at an empty tomb means nothing but to touch the flesh of the Savior that said he was coming back. Woo, that changes everything. <laughs> changes everything. That would be the moment. See, news of an empty tomb, like that means Nothing. It could have been that he was gone. It could have been that he was stolen. Like, none of that matters. To look inside of a tomb and just see a bunch of cloth laying in an empty space, that doesn't propel you forward. That doesn't move you out of the shadows. But when you're in a locked room, and Jesus, God enough to somehow get through the door, and man enough still to be able to touch, it changes things. See, news of an empty tomb will not radically change your life. But when you come to the realization of the power of the resurrection, it changes everything. It changes everything. That's the moment that our faith is defined. And it would be that event, that reality, that would propel these men and women out of the shadows and into the light. Because now, if Jesus defeated death, what do we have to fear? Because they killed him and he came back to life. If they kill us, then we have life on the other side. So the worst thing that they could do to us doesn't scare us anymore. And when the reality of the resurrection really sinks into your spirit, it will change the way your way you live your life. You will no longer be able to go through Easter just eating eggs and going through the motions. But when the reality of what Jesus has really done on this day sinks deep into your spirit, it won't be something you celebrate one day a year. It will be something that drives your life moment by moment every single day until you see him face to face yourself. That's what it does. That's the power that it holds. And what it's going to take for you to come to that realization, I don't know. It's different for everybody. There was one of them that happened not to be in that room that night. I don't know what other kind of plans Thomas had, but for some reason he wasn't there. And word begins to spread that Jesus had stood among them. And Thomas says, I will not believe it until I see it for myself. I'm not going to believe it just because you're Peter. I, I'm not going to believe it. John, I'm not, you can tell me all you want. I'm not, until I touch him, until I put my hands on him, until I see it. put my fingers in his wounds, I will not believe. And then Thomas finds himself eyeball to eyeball with Jesus himself. And he says, here you go, Thomas. Touch me. See, here's the spots. Those spikes that they drove into me to make sure I stayed on that cross. Here's the wounds, put your hands here, feel it, touch it. And Thomas's response is everybody's response when you stand face to face with the fullness of Almighty God. His only thing he can say is, my Lord and my God. And there's some people in the room, you think, you know what, if Jesus showed up in here right in front of my face, I would believe too. He's here. You can't see Him. You can't physically touch Him. But all your life, He's been touching you. Through different moments and situations and circumstances, He's been tugging at your heart, trying to pull you to Himself. Trying to pull you away from the religious system that's frustrated you. Trying to pull you away from the sin that separated you. He's been touching you and pulling at you and drawing you in. And when the reality of the resurrection hits you. It changes the way that you live your life. And that night as Thomas touched the flesh of Jesus, it changed everything for Thomas. But Peter was in the room that night when Jesus showed up. And what he does the next day is puzzling. Because you would think, again, Peter brazen, bold, Peter would have left that room immediately and be like, I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going to tell everybody. I'm, find me the high priest right now. I'm going to tell everybody. So you know what? But you know what Peter does the day after he stands in a room with the risen King. He goes fishing. He was southern too. <laughs> what else does a man, southern man do after he meets you? And they say, "We're gonna go fish." <laughs> like really? Like you've seen Jesus in the flesh, and the next day you go back to your old job? Why on earth would you go from standing in a room with Jesus to on a boat with some stinky fish? And some people might think, Peter, where's your faith? Where's your, Peter? Why don't you have enough faith to leave that room and go shout to the rooftops about what Jesus is and what Jesus is doing? But I'm going to submit to you that it wasn't the absence of faith that caused Peter to get on that boat. It wasn't the absence of faith that caused him to go back to fishing. It wasn't the absence of faith, it was the presence of shame. It wasn't the absence of faith that put Peter on the boat. It was the presence of shame. I don't think Peter wouldn't get on that boat thinking, oh, that ain't really Jesus, or this thing ain't going nowhere, or there ain't nothing cool going to happen. I think Peter got on that boat knowing, like, what those guys are about to experience is going to be powerful. What Jesus is going to do now that he's risen is awesome. All that stuff that he ever told us is going to come true. What they're about to experience, this world is about to be turned upside down for Jesus' glory. But I can't be a part of it because I messed up too bad. All he kept thinking was about those three different people that came up to him and said, hey, you know Jesus, don't you? you're one of his disciples. And he said, no, no, I'm not. Hey, you're, you're Peter, you're, you're one of those guys that's been with Jesus this whole time, right? No, no, you, you've got the wrong guy. He stands before a little girl. And even before a little girl, he cannot have the courage to say, I know him. And Peter gets on that boat not because there's an absence of faith, but because there's an overwhelming presence of shame. And he just believes deep in his spirit that the part he once was going to be able to play, he no longer will. That the mistake that he has made has disqualified him from being able to play that part. But while he's fishing... All of a sudden, from the shoreline, someone calls. Y'all catching anything? Because Jesus was southern too. (laughs) And it takes a minute or so, and Peter realizes that's not just some stranger on the shoreline. That's Jesus. And Peter doesn't row to the shore. Homeboy dives in. And swims as fast as he can. And him and Jesus have breakfast on the beach. And in that conversation, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Oh Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep, feed my lamb. You love me? Yes. You know you love me? Yes. You love me? Yes. But what I've never noticed until the last couple of weeks is, you know the very last thing that Peter, that Jesus says to Peter? The very last two words are the exact two words that were the first words that Jesus said to Peter. The very last thing that Jesus says to Peter is, follow me. He says, Peter, from the beginning, then I wanted you to follow me. Now I want you to follow me. And I don't care what's happened in between. Because you can do nothing to disqualify you from the call that I have on your life. Because the reality of the resurrection is not just that all fear is gone, but all shame can be erased. and Peter in that moment. See, sometimes it's fear that keeps us in the shadows, and sometimes it's shame. And either way, the resurrection and its reality calls you out of the shadows, whether it's fear or whether it's shame or whatever it is. It should give you the courage to step into the destiny that God has for you and attack this life with bold courage because of who he is and what he has done. And when Peter left the beach that day, his world was forever different. He he was on the boat. He was a broken, shameful man. On the beach, like most of us, things changed. And I just quickly, I've got to show you this. Where you see the reality of the resurrection sinking deep into Peter's spirit. Some, some might say it was when the Holy Spirit came and then he preaches the Pentecost sermon, that kind of stuff. But no, where, where you really see its evidence... Is in Acts chapter 4 because in Acts chapter 4 what's happening is now the ministry of Jesus is being kept moving the movement that Jesus started is continuing to move through the ministry of Peter and John and others like them who have been empowered now by the reality that Jesus is alive and they just healed a man and they made the mistake of healing him on the Sabbath and once again they like Jesus done ticked off the religious people That's how you know that you're living for Jesus. You make some religious people mad, which we do from time to time. (laughs) And what happens next is because of that event, Peter is about to find himself standing face to face with the same group of men that sent Jesus to the cross. The same group of men whom Peter just weeks, not months, not years, just weeks ago, were so afraid of that he wouldn't even let a little girl know that he knew Jesus. The same group of men that had caused him to be so afraid that he retreated to the shadows. He's about to stand before those very men. And I want you to just look how it unfolds. Acts chapter 4, pick up with verse 5. says, the next day. The rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anais, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family, the exact same men that had condemned Jesus to death. It says they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter looks at him, the same men that scared him to death, and he's like, I'm glad you brought me here. Because I get to right a wrong that I made three weeks ago, four weeks ago, several weeks ago, a few weeks ago. I was so scared of you that I couldn't even acknowledge Jesus even when I wasn't around you. But you know what? Now I'll look you in the eye. And you were my greatest fear, but you aren't anymore. And I'll be glad to clearly tell you who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and who Jesus will forever be. And you know what gives a man that kind of courage? It's not an empty tomb. It's a relationship with the risen king that's how it comes see when the reality of the resurrection sinks deep into your spirit you can look at the thing that you fear the most and say bring it I'm not scared of you because I serve a God that's bigger than you I serve a God that has defeated what you threw at him and he can give me the strength to defeat what you will throw at me so I'm not afraid anymore My fear is gone. My shame is gone. I am new. I am made whole. Not because of anything that anybody else has done. And not because a tomb is empty. But because I've seen the risen king. And my hope is that that reality is what sinks deep in your spirit this Easter. So you bow your heads. Close your eyes with me. There's some people in the room like you've never acknowledged the resurrection of Jesus. You've never stepped into that power. Because for some reason you've let something stand in the way of ever giving your heart to him and tonight is the night that you need the way you need to celebrate easter is not through hunting eggs but surrendering your life to the risen king and if that's you and you've never done that tonight i'm going to ask you to do something that i know is going to take a lot of courage but will you just stand on your feet because i want to pray for you say you know what I know I need a relationship with Jesus. And so I always want to stand symbolizing that I'm giving my life to him. I'm accepting what he's done for me on the cross. And I'm acknowledging him, not just as some man who walked this earth, but the risen king. If that's you, just stand up right where you are. Amen. Just stay standing. Stand up right where you are. Amen. Amen. There's some people in the room that you made that decision at some point but you're living in fear and you're living in shame because the reality of the resurrection has somehow gotten lost along the way it's gotten caught up in the shuffle and it's gotten caught up in the religious ritual or whatever and you've been living in fear and worry and scared and, and, and letting the enemy continue to ri- remind you of your past and today it's time to step in to the light and out of the shadows of fear and shame and live in the power of the resurrected king and if that's you say Matt you know what i I haven't been living in that power moment by moment, day by day. If that's you, would you just stand on your feet because I want to pray for you too. Man, I want to live with that power. I want to live with that understanding. That I want to be able to look at the things that are in front of me that scare me to death and remind them of who Jesus is and the power that he has to give me freedom from that or freedom in that or strength to deal with that. Just stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Amen. 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 Father, I pray right now over the ones who stood stepping into a relationship with you. God, I know the enemy's going to try to rob them of it. Tell them it's not real. Tell them you're not real. But God, I pray that at every turn, you would remind them of the beauty and power of this day. Yes, the tomb is empty. But more importantly, the king has risen. And now he resides in the hearts of every person who looks to them. And therefore, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us and i pray for those who know you but have not allowed themselves to live in that power would step into it like never before and the power of the resurrection would be what causes them to rise above the shame and rise above the fear and live with courage and god as we worship you now in this moment i pray that you would use this time as we proclaim what you've done and who you are just to solidify these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. To stay connected with what's happening at Vintage, download the Vintage Church app to access sermon notes, events, devotionals, previous podcasts, and discover ways to get connected in community. We hope you join us again soon.